Welcome to the ninth episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by BMO's Hong Kong-based trader, Dave Moore. Dave trades various Canadian dollar and US dollar bonds during the Asian session. This week's episode is titled, Inflating Bank of Canada Expectations. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. It's been a few months since I had Dave on the show, and a lot has changed since then. It's been a particularly eventful couple of weeks in Canada, with the Bank of Canada's policy announcement and the changes to their securities repo operation. Dave last joined me on October 7th, and on that day, Canada 10-year yields closed at 62.4 basis points, and U.S. 10-year yields closed at 78.5 basis points. He made his bearish view on duration well-known that day, and here we are more than 20 basis points higher in yield. Great call, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, That was just better lucky than good, honestly. Um, I look at what's changed, and a lot of it has played out as we spoke about, you know, prediction of faster recovery, uh, prediction of getting vaccines into people's hands faster than was being priced in. Uh, the general steepening that comes with uh, quicker recoveries. Like 5.30s, I think it's probably 20 beeps steeper, and that's not even at the steeps uh, since we spoke. 30-year yields are, what, 35 beeps higher, uh, and 5-year, 5-year inflation, 30 beeps higher, 10-year breaks are probably 40-odd beeps. So a lot has happened, and yeah, okay, I, I got lucky on a call and said that I think that 30 years are no man's land, but that hasn't changed. Like I still feel that's the case that I cannot justify owning long bonds even here, even after a twenty basis point or thirty basis point move. Like I, I don't sit here and get excited at the prospect of long bonds here, and I, I just don't see that changing <laughs> anytime soon. And so I will remain in that perma bear camp for for unless things change and the information in front of me changes. But for now, that hasn't been the case. So. Uh, I'm still there, and I do think the Bank of Canada is the like, you know, is one of the most interesting things that's going on since we last spoke. All right, I I, I agree with your broader view still, as our listeners know know well. Uh, this week we're going to tackle some big questions uh, that are or will be hanging over the Canadian market. For example, uh, what is the outlook for inflation in Canada? How will that impact the demand for duration? Uh, will the Bank of Canada be a first mover among central banks? And U.S.-Canada relations in the context of the Keystone XL cancellation and uh, what the Biden administration could mean for the Canadian macro landscape. Uh, But before we get on to those topics, I'm going to talk about the Bank of Canada a little bit first. Last week's uh, policy announcement, I mean, pretty much as expected, there were were, were some rumblings of a micro cut uh, that that didn't come. I still say that, I mean, that would have been awful tough to explain given the better backdrop. Uh, They managed to keep their timing for the output gap closing the same, but uh, I mean, I think that was to some extent, I'm not going to say fudged, but uh, that probably took some effort to keep it in 2023. Uh, as, as with the U.S. output gap now closed in 2021, uh, the vaccine timeline has improved notably. 
uh, fair that, that Q1 this year where, that we're currently in is going to be materially weaker than everybody thought. Um, there's probably downside risk to, to most forecasts, but uh, the rebound is, is still very much in play once we get vaccinations moving a little bit quicker uh, than they are now, which I'd expect probably uh, at least over the next few months or so. The other big news out of the bank was was on Friday, late Friday, they, they expanded the securities repo operation. Uh, and, and for those who, who aren't very avid front-end watchers, the front end of Canada has, has seen uh, notable shortages of collateral, uh, and that's pushed Cora, the repo rate effectively, down pretty significantly below target. Uh, historically, Cora sets around the Bank of Canada's policy rate. Uh, it has been drifting down for a while. It was setting at 20 versus 25 for a long time. Uh, and then last week, just ahead of the bank, it, it fell into the, the mid-teens, and, and uh, that caused a bit of a tizzy in the market. Uh, and then that's driven by a couple of factors. Again, a shortage of collateral. The Bank of Canada keeps buying a lot of bonds. There just aren't enough bonds out there in the market to satisfy demand. And so that 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 drives uh, them to be special in repo. And and the second half of the, the, the equation there is just cash piles. I mean, the, the banks and, and the financial system have a massive stockpile of cash uh, driven by QE, uh, term repo operations, everything the Bank of Canada has done over the past year, all, all their extraordinary measures. Uh, have really pushed uh, cash into the market. And so that cash needs to find a home, tends to be in the front end. And so that exacerbates all of these problems. And so what the Bank of Canada has done is they've made the bond that they've bought more available to be to be borrowed by the financial system generally, by banks and such. Uh, and so that helps ease that shortage of collateral. Uh, we've seen some increase in Cora already. One day in, it rose five basis points from 15 beeps to 20 beeps. So it seems as though that's mission accomplished for now. Uh, one of the questions that I've gotten and one of the, I think the commentary I've seen from a, a number of people is, is why did they wait till Friday? And, and some folks are viewing this as, as, a, as a quasi rate hike, a stealth hike. Uh, and, and I mean, I put, put both of those thoughts to bed, please. Uh, one, this move is meant to be totally separate from policy. And they've done that on purpose. QE is a effort by the Bank of Canada to provide as much stimulus as possible in difficult times. And the market impact is secondary there. I mean, they, they, they want the market to function properly, but that's a secondary impact and they'll, they'll deal with that separately. That has nothing to do with providing stimulus. Uh, and, and so they want the market to function properly. And when you have a shortage of collateral and that has other market impacts like pushing core down or pulling core down, that's something they look to alleviate over time. And so, I mean, that, that's, the, that's what's driving this. Don't think about this move in any way is related to policy. It's intended to allow proper market functioning rather than uh, be any type of policy move. So uh, please, please put that thinking to bed for now. We'll, we'll see if things change, but uh, that's, that's, that's how I view this. Um, Dave, before we, before we move on to those questions, um, any, any thoughts on the bank? Uh, before we get to that that first inflation question, yeah, I totally agree. When I look at what you do on a Friday and not, you know, at the meeting that just happened to be a couple of days before, is they were very deliberate in saying that this is not part of the um, the standard rate decision process. That this is a tool that is used in times of crisis and can be pulled on at any moment in time. And I think that's really, I think that's proper. I think it's appropriate. Uh, I, I don't see it as a stealth hike. I don't see it as any of those things. I think it's market stabilization, financial stability measures, you know, being done in a prudent way. Whether Cora stays at 20 beeps or not is up for discussion. And I think that there will be further gyrations uh, in Cora because that's what happens when you own, what, 37, 39%? 
of yep. Canadian, somewhere around there, right? It. Like it's, it's about yep. 37, 39%. There will be an impact. There will be an impact. It's not a surprise that there's going to be an impact and it's not a shock that there's going to be an impact, but it, it felt like very much uh, a standard response to owning a lot of government debt that's not in the hands of you know the dealers and accessible product class. Um, but it felt made in Canada, right? It felt so shocking that it came just before the meeting that it was like the week before it moves from 19 to 15 basis points. And you're like, oh my God, okay, is this us getting set up for a micro cut? Does someone know something that someone else doesn't know? And all of that kind of stuff. And you're reminded that this is transaction based and it's just supply and demand and, you know, it's cash versus collateral and what's available. I do think though that can like what the Bank of Canada has done here five years from now or so, they're going to come out looking like they were so ahead of the game. But I don't think it's because of necessarily due to the decisions that are being made today. I think that there's been prudent policy measures that have been put in place that have caused material distortions in our market. But I think that, you know, things are going to go quite well. And whether it's, you know, vaccines getting into people's hands and the economy slowly reopening, that's all fair and well. For me, it's an immigration story. For me, it's like you have every single person who's looking at social, you know, issues in their home countries and saying, where do I want to be? And as, you know, a recently, I don't even know what the right word is, I became Canadian. I am a Canadian citizen. When I received my citizenship, it's one of the proudest things that ever happened to me, proudest moments of my life. And when I look at that, and I'm not coming from some destitute place where there's war or where there's chaos or where there's lack of opportunity or there's lack of availability of resources or any of that stuff, right? I'm coming from a developed, amazing country. And I was so excited to move to Canada and spend on like most of my adult life there. And so I look at Toronto, for example, 150,000 people come to Toronto annually. It's like, you know, COVID excluded 90 odd thousand of those people are international. They're coming with money. They're coming with the ability to try and be prosperous. And so if you have a queue out the door and round a couple of blocks to come to Canada for all the right reasons, the same reason I did, the same reason I'm so happy that I made that decision. Like that is going to have such a massive impact on the economy. It's just going to open the floodgates. And so two, three years from now, Canada coming, you know, saying, okay, we're, we're shifting our, our stance on QE. We're shifting our stance on emergency levels and policy is going to look prophetic in the sense that everything kind of from here on out probably does really well. And I think I think it was just a really smart play. I know it might not be the right play, and I know that it hurt a lot of people, and I know that there's going to be consequences to this. But regardless of their decisions today, I see the bank and I see Canada particularly becoming a just like there's so much tailwind behind the story in Canada now. Again, that just makes me really excited. And it's got nothing to do with the Bank of Canada's decisions last week. It's nothing. You've brought us to our question. That the, one, of the, one of the questions I asked at the beginning is, is will the bank be a first mover among central banks? Um, but before we get to that in particular, I, I, I guess you read my piece from, from earlier this week. Uh, immigration is, is, I agree, a huge theme. And if you consider the fact that we do bring in uh, hundreds of thousands of people per year, four to 500,000 over the past few years, you'd have to think there's pent up demand there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the lineup is still there. People that wanted to come in 2020 are, still want to come uh, and there'll be more people going forward. And so I guess it's a question of, of how many people the government lets in. It might be 2022 
but whenever the doors open, how open will they be? And that'll determine how 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 much more we grow on top of what's already expected to be a really, really, really strong macro backdrop with households that have been cooped up at home for, I mean, God knows how long, just itching to spend their savings, itching to go on vacation, itching to get a haircut. God, I know I need one right now. But think about this, though. Like, you, you have all the things you've said, right? Like, and I agree. But you've also have now a proven model that people don't have to be in the central districts or centers of any major city to be able to function or do their jobs. So what used to be a very limiting factor for, you know, particularly, say, uh, Vancouver or Toronto and to a lesser degree Montreal, where all of the jobs are really central focused, like Toronto, you've got legal banking services, and you have to be within a two, like a one hour, two hour range to get in there, where a Canadian would happily say, oh, yeah, I can you an hour, or an hour and a half. And to someone like here in Hong Kong, 15 minutes is too long. An hour and a half is just is never going to happen, right? It's, it's just a different mindset. And now we've opened up this entire new workspace that says you can live four hours outside of Toronto or four hours outside of Vancouver or four hours outside of Montreal. You can live anywhere. You might have to come in once a week or you might have to come in twice a week. But you've now opened up an entire new um, living space for people coming to Canada that would have seen living in Toronto or one of the major cities in, in Canada as just too expensive. And I think we're discounting that. I think we're not placing enough emphasis on this. And I think that's actually one of the, the biggest reasons why Canada will have huge tailwinds going into 22-23 because it's no longer the need to live in Toronto, the need to live in Montreal and to pay, you know, or, or Vancouver and pay however much it costs per month in rent or mortgage to, to live there. That plus all of the people coming in, it is really down to, okay, Canada, how many people are we going to let in? Because the, whatever that number is, the upside is gigantic. It's just gigantic. Yes, things have definitely changed from a work perspective. Uh, I don't know if you want to live four hours north of Toronto or, or Montreal or Vancouver, uh, and you can't go four hours south without changing countries. Uh, but I mean, we've already seen to some extent a, a pretty big increase in demand uh, for for suburban living, call it, uh, just moving kind of the outskirts of any of the cities. Uh, there's already been a shift that way. There's no reason to believe that that's not going to continue. What it's actually done, interestingly enough, is you've seen kind of the the condo market cheapen up a little bit. So uh, there, there, there's room for people everywhere here. Great white north. We got lots of space. So we will let people in and we'll, we'll, we'll see how many and, and kind of go from there. So with that backdrop, uh, immigration, strong 2022, pent up demand, although everybody's got that part. Uh, will the Bank of Canada be among the first central banks to move? I know there was an article in the National Post uh, suggesting as much. I personally lean that way to some extent. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on the bank being the first among, call it major global central banks, if we are a major global central bank, uh, to, to move on policy once uh, we're through this pandemic? I'm going to say we most certainly are a major global central bank. I think that, um, I think, yeah, I think that Canada will be the first mover out of the, let's say, G7 or G10 or whichever selection of countries you want to pick. Look at our OIS curve, right? You've got March meeting pricing 20% uh, cut or five basis points, right? 20, 20% of a 25 basis point cut. By April of next year, that's essentially zero. So the curve isn't why we call meaningfully steep, right? It's five basis points to zero basis points. It's not like you're sitting there saying this is a super attractive trading opportunity. But when I look at that pricing of that curve and I say, well, 
is that under or overpriced? I think what we end up seeing is we go down the SRO change and then relinquish a lot of the stress in the front end. Flatteners probably have some more juice in them, but not a great deal. We start to see bonds come back in. The Bank of Canada, rather than adding to QE, will probably extend their WAM out to five. It's like probably, like if you want to talk about it in WAM years, maybe two and a half years, they'll extend it further out, um, which will place you know good amount of support for what is already a decent part of the curve on a carry and roll down perspective. So five sevens through tens will do well. They'll then sit there quite comfortably and, you know, just let it trickle down and then they will start to taper. But they'll do it similar, at least I think. They'll do it similar in that kind of operation twist in which you extend the WAM out, start pushing bonds back into the system to get financial stability back under control and get the front end under control, get repo rates under control, get, you know, that pinned in and and done properly while extending out. I don't see it as new net money coming into the system from the bank uh, in the belly or, you know, say the 10-year sector. I just see a gradual push out that curve, a gradual move, money coming back in and bonds being released into the front end. And then once we are satisfied with the, the money side of things, and that's where it really is what the bank, I think, are looking at at this point is the capital balance between money available, money chasing assets, um, and that wall of cash that you spoke about earlier, once the bank is satisfied that that's under some form of control, they'll then start to hint towards a tapering program. And that's how I think this plays out. And I think this plays out quicker than, you know, a year from now or two years from now. I think it's it's, it's, it's a more imminent thing than that. And so, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Canada is the first. They're the first to come out and say that they were fairly comfortable with this idea that this is emergency only and we need to start looking at the future and pushing forward with, with our, our, our proper normal day-to-day lives and proper normal day-to-day banking. And so, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think they will. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, well, first uh, I, I think tapering, the first taper move probably comes in April uh, just uh, partially because of the, the better outlook and, and we should be uh, at least looking at a, at, a, at at spring and summer when we know that things are, are far more under control from a health perspective. But at the same time, we'll have the budget for uh, fiscal year 21-22 and issuance is going to be down significantly. Uh, and and uh, with that, the bank needs to be buying fewer bonds uh, as much as they'd love to, to provide more stimulus. Uh, they're, they're, they don't want to create more distortions in the market than they already have. So between the better macro backdrop, likely, assuming Q1 is not absolutely horrific and a decline in issuance that will be significant uh, for the record at a hundred billion plus or so, something along those lines that they, they will be cutting. So uh, cutting tapering their QE, excuse me. Uh, so that, that, that means I, I, I think that means they cut their purchases to about 3 billion per week uh, from the current 4 billion. Macklem went out of his way to say that their tapering is going to be very, very slow. Uh, they're going to do it deliberately. Uh, it's going to be over a long, long period of time kind of one step at a time thing. So from my perspective, that probably means like a, a billion at a time. So maybe a billion a quarter or a billion every six months. Uh, it kind of depends on what the Fed's doing. Uh, but I, I see the first move is in April, and then we, we kind of go from there. Uh, and whether the bank could be the first central bank to raise rates at the end of the day, again, that's probably not till 2022, late 22 at the earliest uh, at this point. And I'm, I'm, I'm generally the optimistic one, but still uh, late 22 at the earliest. 
I, I think they can be. I, I think that the, the Bank of Canada has less of a global responsibility than the Fed. And so when you, when you, when people like to say, well, it, the bank can't go without the Fed. Well, uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. It depends what commodity prices are doing, where the currency is. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, issues there. But assuming the currency is well-behaved, the bank can hike first. Uh, and, and, and the rationale behind that for me is that, is that global markets don't live and breathe what the Bank of Canada says and does, where their policy rates are. Uh, there's no global responsibility. When if, if the Bank of Canada makes a policy mistake and raises too early, hikes too early and tightens too early, what impact is there on global markets? Well, well, none. Uh, I mean, there's an impact on Canadian markets, but they that that's a domestic issue. If the Fed makes a mistake, on the other hand, uh, the global financial system melts down. Uh, so they they have a far larger responsibility than the Fed, and so that gives them a a green light to not be. I mean, if if they're 95 percent sure they need to go, I think that's okay. Whereas for the Fed. Uh, it, it has to be 100, percent and then on top of that, you have the the average inflation targeting versus what the Bank Canada is doing, which is I would call flexible inflation targeting. Uh, and so, the, I mean, that's I think that dynamic enables the the bank at least to move first for now. Uh, and, and on that topic, I mean, that brings us to inflation. Uh, what the outlook is for inflation in Canada, North America, uh, globally? I think I think there, there's uh, lots of room for conversation there. Dave, you're you're bullish on 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 the global macro backdrop kind of looking forward so i'm assuming you're bullish on inflation as well yeah oh yeah 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 big <laughs> but for the wrong reasons i think um i'm bullish because well let's take the u.s first and then we'll, we'll go to canada but you you mentioned average inflation in, in the u.s and i did a bit of work on it because i thought okay at what point do policymakers start to get nervous because that's really what we're like in our world that's what we're really searching for is what is the stress what is the thing the surprise the thing that causes chaos panic carnage like that's what we're aiming for right those tail risks and trying to get a better grasp of them so let's take the average inflation profile for the u.s and i don't know which arbitrary number they're going to pick if it's two year three year five year but let's say it's five years just because that's nice kind of half in between the start of the crisis and now. Or let's just say five years just because it's it just makes sense to me. Five-year average inflation right now in the U.S. is 195, right? Using CPI and using their, their measures, 1.95 or 1.948, but let's round up 195. And let's say the Fed are comfortable at 225 average. So 25, 30 beats from here. And I don't think that's a stretch, 25 to 30 basis points from here in inflation numbers. I don't think is a stretch when you consider five-year, five-year inflation has moved 30 basis points higher since we last spoke, right? I don't think it's a crazy, massive number that we're, we're talking about. But in order to get us to that two and a quarter using a five-year average, we need to get to 3.6% inflation by end of year, right? The end of this year, 2021. If we had a move from a 195 average to a two and a quarter average, but to get there, it took 3.6%. I, I, there's no central banker on earth that's going to sit and just be comfortable with that. And this is my issue is that inflationary pressures are there. And we say we're comfortable with moving to a less robust, you know, arithmetic, like pure hard targeting inflation and more in average inflation. But even if you go to a two year target, Two-year right now in the U.S. is, well, I don't know. It's like you probably need 3.1%, to get us there, like to get us to that two and a quarter. So I struggle with this just arbitrary side of inflation management. 
I understand why we want to target inflation and I understand the whole purpose of inflation or inflation targeting. But when you look at the US, I think they have a much harder job to look through massive inflation prints to get us to that average. And I just don't see the same issues in Canada. As you say, they're much more flexible inflation targeting process. But even if you talk about, okay, 30 beeps or 40 beeps or 50 beeps higher, right, you know, as we're going, the numbers we're starting from, the base level in Canada is just so low. Like it's what, 165? If you're doing the five-year average, it's 165, right? Like we're really, really low. Like we haven't seen proper inflation build up in Canada in forever. Like 10-year breaks are like, are what, I don't know, 150? There's a lot of things there that are suggesting to me that Canada, relative to the peer group, relative to the broader inflation uh, landscape, is actually underpriced. The US, I think, is much trickier because you get inflation spikes. I don't think they're going to sit and stand by and watch that happen and say, oh, it's inflation averaging. Because the minute, and we spoke about this last time, inflation is self-fulfilling. The minute you start to think as a producer that the prices that you're going to sell your good for and the inputs required to make that good are, you know, the inputs are higher tomorrow than they are today, your price goes up. That just does. Like it's, you're not waiting to see it in CPI or PCE or RPI in the UK. You're not sitting waiting to see it on a monthly basis. You're watching it happen as your input prices are going up. Your cost to sell has to go up. Now, I would be remiss in, you know, and not mention the fact that I don't believe we're as much of a manufacturing economy as we had been in the 1970s. And so in 1968, when you have oil go crazy and then you know the subsequent inflation uh, that comes in 70s to late, late 77 78 i don't think that you're going to have that same type of inflationary problem because we're just not a manufacturing economy in the same way a lot of what we do is either cloud-based or a lot of what we do is tech-based a lot of what we do is not production and even if it is production it's so quick to produce now you know clothing companies can turn around an entire line in six weeks an entire line and have it from, you know, concept to store in six weeks. They're not concerned about where the price of cotton is in two years forward. It's just, it's a different landscape. And so we have to, I think, step back and remind ourselves that when we look at history of inflation, the history of inflation is based on an economy that's manufacturing dominant and we're just not there anymore. And that's okay. Like that's fine, but it doesn't mean that inflation can't exist. And so, when, as I say, when I look at Canada and I look at the US or other countries, I actually think Canada is starting from a much lower base with much higher potential inflation, partly because of the, um, the tailwinds we spoke about, whether it's immigration and you know, vaccines and recovery and um, naturally steeper curves and all those things. That's part of it. But I also think when I look at inflation, and I'm still kind of getting my head around, is this the appropriate way to look at inflation is... We're no longer in a world in which everyone cares about the lowest cost production. There's you know, ethical decisions around who do you source from, from your production side. There's ethical decisions around how do you pay your labor and where is that labor? You know, I'm, I'm not comfortable buying a t-shirt made by a child the same age as my daughter because it's the cheapest option. I'm just not comfortable with that. That's my preference. And so I will go out looking for a more, you know, a more ethically constructed garment and like that's me that's my personal choice and i do think that there is a natural draw towards more ethical product uh, procedure and production line work i also think you have questions around uh, intellectual property trade secrecy and there 
as we've kind of evolved over the last few months since we last spoke, just even looking at U.S. trade relations and I mean, the Keystone is another one that we can talk about. But you look at what's happening is people are going more introverted. People are coming home more in the production of goods. And so I think as we come home more in the production of goods, we're going to see broader price inflation due to people being more comfortable spending a little bit more on a T-shirt that's made locally or, you know, it's made in, in the United States or it's made in North America. I think that there is going to be a natural draw in to control the supply chain because what this crisis has taught us is that we were absolutely terrible at, you know, not just, you know, Canada or the US, but generally in the developed world, we were terrible at supply chain management. Terrible. Like, you know, that's what it is. Getting masks, N95, getting hand sanitizer, whatever it was. Was ex- like it, it was almost embarrassing. It was almost comically embarrassing that we didn't have enough to help our own people. That's 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 what this showed us. And so I think that companies are going to look less towards the cheapest source, more towards ethical practice, more towards supply chain management, and owning front to back, uh, which comes at a higher price. If you want to buy a telephone or a mobile phone made in a developing nation versus made in the United States. That phone is going to cost you four to 10 times more. Like that's reality. That's the cost. If you want to pay, you know, proper uh, living wage, proper sourcing of, of uh, input, that's reality. And as we become more inward looking and as we become more ethical in our purchasing decisions, I actually think that that's really, really inflationary. And it's, it's one of those things that it just, I don't see enough talked about. And it's just, it's one of those sneaky little ones that, you know, the Instagram world or the, the social media world that pushes out, you know, ethical kind of content. And I'm seeing it, you know, more and more frequently. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked that that is one of those tailwinds that we're really, really not planning for. So put it with everything else that's happening. I think Canada's in just one of those places that we could see material move in inflation. And I think the bank sees it too. And that's why they're so much more comfortable talking about stepping back or, you know, at least slowing and or removing the emergency level uh, stimulus than other central banks have been. Because there's just the tailwinds we talk about, add in all of that, the inflationary pressure, price pressure buildup is is material. It's very material in my mind. So that's an interesting angle on inflation. Uh, I I hadn't thought about it, I guess, from that perspective as much. I, I, th- I think about it more just at least in the very near term. And I, and I think your view would be kind of longer term, but very near term, I, I think, again, as you mentioned, we're, we're less manufacturing driven, more services driven, which means inflation is more services driven. And and given the supply destruction on that side, on, on uh, a lot of the services side over the past year and, and ongoing, when demand comes back, it may overwhelm supply. And, and that has the potential to at least cause a temporary spike in inflation. Uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked if kind of the in in early 22 or late, late 2021, you got that kind of increase just because there aren't as many service providers of travel and other personal services as there were uh, pre-pandemic. And then you also, on top of that, have this wave of demand that comes in. So I, th- I think there is that risk there. And then on top of that, you can layer that on your, your longer term views uh, on, on production and, and that uh, people bringing production back home. Let's tackle one last question. Because I know we, I know you want to talk about this, and so or you want me to talk about this. So 
U.S.-Canada relations, uh, Keystone Excel was was wiped off the map effectively last week, and, and uh, hopes of that are pretty pretty much gone now, I think, and will not be revived anytime soon. That is, I guess, the initial imprint of the Biden administration on, on Canada. What are you most concerned about? What aspect of, of U.S. policy changes worry you most? And, and maybe I can address those. It's not so much a, like there's no one specific thing that really worries me, is that as, as we just spoke about this inward looking process that a lot of the economies and countries are going through now, you know, and Trump was very focused on that. I don't think the, the new administration are going to move too far away from it. I do think that they'll continue that tone. And so I'm a bit concerned from a trading partner standpoint, Canada and the US, Keystone, you know, out of it just for a second, but I think is a great example of the, just the natural tension that the two countries always have and and it's a good tension but you know it's an impactful one is that as we start to become more inward looking and you say okay well production of lumber in canada and then versus the us and how we marry or how we merge and we coexist in this inward looking economy it's starting to worry me that's i think is the concern it's less so about this specific administration but the stance they took on keystone so early like just so early, showed or at least expresses to me the willingness to remain inward looking and America first without saying it in, you know, in an aggressive manner, just it, it showed it through a decision and how Canada responds to that and what can Canada do to either cross the aisle or you know, an olive branch if necessary or what can we do at the, you know, the government level, at the economic level to ensure the safety and the the resources are necessary for us to continue to prosper. Uh, that that the last part is a good question. I'm not sure I can answer that part. Well, what we can actually do, I think, it, it, it's it's tough. But the U.S. is, is going to continue to need uh, a lot of the natural resources we provide, uh, and and I, I think the Keystone move is is just something based on history. I mean, when Biden was VP, they were they they said they did not permit Keystone to to move forward, uh, and to some extent, he's stuck with that decision from back then. He was part of that administration. You can't go back on that now. And the uh, environmental uh, side of things, the environmentalists, I mean, they put a lot of pressure on the, this, this administration to, to, to follow through with that. And so the, they don't want to be seen, given the talk from the Democratic Party about being green, about they, they don't want to be seen kind of going the other way early. And from their perspective, Keystone is, is benefits Canada a lot more than the U.S. at the end of the day. Uh, and, and so as, as many as jobs as it creates, that kind of longer term picture is still candidate driven. And so, I mean, there's no, no big loss from their perspective. I think they, they're, they're okay with that. Uh, beyond Keystone, I, it, it, it's, it's tough. I, I think a lot of what Biden's done early and talking about forcing federal contracts to source their, their goods and, and, and such domestically, uh, to the so-called buy America. I think a lot of that is, driven by what we saw with Trump and the fact that that was a message that resonated with the general population. And I, it's just something that I think is, is important for them to at least say just from a popularity perspective, but I'm not convinced they're going to follow through with that in any meaningful way. I think that that's, that's going to be something we see. Biden, I, I see him as being uh, more multilateral and, and a little bit more, I'll call it a little bit friendlier. Uh, at a minimum, at least on the surface, uh, he won't be as confrontational as, as the Trump administration was. And so 
honestly, I'm not sure that got Trump anywhere at the end of the day. I mean, if you look at their one of the promises walking into the walking into office, uh, what a four four plus years ago, was that uh, the U.S.'s trade balance would would be go from deficit to surplus, and he ended with the biggest deficit on record. So there are some things that are are more difficult than you think to get done. Uh, that that would be one. So I I, I think it's it's going to be a little more multilateral from Biden, less confrontation, and that should be beneficial for Canada. But I mean, we're to some extent at their mercy. On the back of the cancellation of Keystone, like, what are we really going to do? Are we going to put sanctions on the U.S.? <laughs> are we going to put trade? Are we going to start a trade war? Uh, I don't, that's not something Canada can afford to do. And so it, it, it is a difficult relationship. And we just need to make sure that when we can do them a favor, we do that uh, just to make sure we stay in their good graces generally. That, that That's my view. I, I'm not sure that's the, the broader view here in Canada. But uh, I think that's the only really real way to play this thing uh, and just, just to make sure we stay as as friendly as possible in any way we can. From a rates and market perspective, I'm not convinced there'll be much impact overall on this. I mean, Keystone is, is a small negative for the oil sector. They weren't really likely going to need it till kind of the mid-2020s or something even later than that, given the lower production profile for oil uh, after the collapse in, in prices on the back of uh, the pandemic and, and really before that. Uh, so it's it's unfortunate. It's not the end of the world, I don't think, at this point. But the, the, the irony of it is, is when oil production ramps up enough to, to, to need that space. It'll go by rail, which will cause even more pollution. Uh, so <laughs> I guess, that, I mean, that that's what they've asked for. That's the way life goes at the end of the day. Careful what you wish for. Uh, before we wrap up today, Dave, uh, as I ask everybody, favorite trade idea. You can give me one, you can give me two, whatever you want. Let's hear uh, Yeah, so like a short term, I think we probably um, are on watch for that 1% break in 10 year. And there could be a material uh, break lower if we, if we go through it just on short covering and you know general uh, feelings around the 1.9 trillion package and how long that'll take and how, why that's even in like in people's minds it's kind of never guaranteed but uh, I do think that will probably cause a bit of, of wiggle and, and move so I'll be watching one percent pretty closely uh, less concerned about the FOMC more concerned about positioning there especially when you look at the tick data and it looks like asset management asset managers have turned short for the first time since like 2016 I guess so uh, I'll be watching that longer term I'm still I just you can't own long bonds <laughs> I just I, I'm going to stick with that for a very long time and when we spoke last I said that was a two to five year trade I think and I stand by that that's a two to five year trade and at some point, the biggest risk that comes with with long bonds or with the bond market in general uh, is people stop believing the central banks. People stop believing the credible uh, the credibility of the central banks to do anything and the value of the bonds that they are pushing out. And if that happens, you can have a twenty percent collapse in equities, and bonds don't rally. Like you can have that happen, especially long bonds. You can have that happen, and so. I'm just very, very anxious or aware or at least cautious of the the back end of the curve in every like <laughs> every every economy. Uh, I just dislike long bonds tremendously, and anything that is negative yielding is not an asset. And you're just hoping that you can sell it to someone else at some other point. And if that someone else doesn't have to happen to be the central bank anymore. And everyone decides we don't like them as well. I think there's a lot of money going through a very small door and the moves will be exceptionally vicious. So that would be, yeah, my longer term, I still dislike the back end. 
cheaper and steeper. I'm with yeah. you there, especially. I mean, near term, agree. Uh, there's there's room for a little bit of strength here. We'll see how how far that goes, but uh, Feels everyone should be selling that strength. Well, like think about it. Like in my region here, uh, the reason why I'm kind of there is that if you look at the MOF tick data for Japan, like they were buying when. 10-year yields were around 116, which gave them an equivalent yield using three-month rolling forward FX uh, cat, like uh, hedging cost of around 74, 75 basis points. That's only like, you know, 10 beeps from here is probably supported in the 10-year. And anything through 1% is a kind of stop-out central sort of thing as people reevaluate and we consolidate around that. So I, that's kind of how I'd be trading it right now. All right, cool. Thanks for joining me this week, Dave. I uh, hope you uh, enjoyed yourself and uh, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. As always, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.